Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm your other co-host, Dean Dilloff. Dean, I don't get to ask you this very much, but I feel like I need to check in with you. How's your walk with Christ going? <laughs> it's going well. It's going pretty well. I think because we had Easter, you know, Lent, it got a little dicey. Holy Saturday, Jesus went to hell, and you're like, what am I even doing? But then he does come back on Sunday, and that just lifts me right up every year um on the edge of my seat all day saturday uh i did say easter was over on twitter and some liturgy nerds uh pointed out that is not true i guess um but as far as i'm concerned i'm living uh in that big exciting moment where jesus is walking around like a ghost but also not a ghost at the same time and i'm i'm into it the walk is going great uh thanks for asking matt and how about yours how's your walk with christ it's going fast um Last Sunday, I watched Sonic 2, so I got a little bit of church, and I got a little bit of Sonic in my life. Jesus walked across the water really fast, and just like Sonic, so I feel like those two things are really going together in my life. Um, it's a great movie, Dean. I gotta tell you, it's, it's a good one. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to take your word for it. I've never seen a Sonic movie, but uh, I will take that recommendation. And the next time I see it playing at the airport or at my parents' house <laughs> or at the at my you could probably watch on a plane for sure. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm positive. I'll, I'll probably watch it in the seat that's in front of me, but from behind it. <laughs> yeah, like where you can't really hear it, but you know that there's probably a funny joke. Yeah, yeah it's good. I did recently see almost in a, like a whole season of um, Peaky Blinders that way. Um, <laughs> on a train and yeah i think it's probably a better way to watch some shows you can kind of just sub out your own sort of <laughs> your own sort of lines in the in the show and that's great yeah you know what uh, sorry this is a major aside already but the one thing i did learn about peaky blinders which i had never seen but for some yeah, reason I've never seen it either for some reason couldn't stop watching <laughs> in this extremely weird way um is uh it's mostly just a guy like a specific guy one actor uh, being mm. in a lot of extremely tense conversations that could go either way. That's basically oh the God. whole show over and over and over again. Is the show somehow about horse racing or something? I don't think so. Or at least by this point in the show, there weren't any horses. There were, um, <laughs> maybe they had outgrown the horses. There were some uh, fascists involved. They were trying to get rid of them or trying to be friends with them. It was really hard to tell, but I got, I think that's kind of the vibe of the show. This is this is the worst. Do you, do you know that some podcasts they do plan out how they're going to kind of open their episodes beforehand? And I've never thought that's been like our style. And right now I'm thinking it maybe it should. It might be time. It might be time to pivot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Uh, so listen, we're watching we're watching movies. We're not really watching TV shows. <laughs> it's great. And our, our walks with Christ are great. And that's I, I hope everyone else is also in the same boat as us. Um, or not, depending on how you feel about the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe you're not a fan. It's fine. I don't care. Um, anyways, uh, let's get down to brass tacks here. Throughout oh, the past year or so, we've been doing episodes here or there about uh, really serious topics like the IPCC reports about climate change. We've been talking about degrowth. We've been talking about, I don't know, uh, eco-socialism and eco-theology. And this is going to be one of those episodes. The tax or brass? Uh, don't sit on the tax. Just hold on. I don't know what you're supposed to do with the brass tax. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So, Dean, let me tell you about this. At the beginning of this year, I uh, made a huge life decision. And that was to break my tradition of never reading a single fiction book. Mm-hmm. Um, I have read s- some fiction books. But, like, as an adult, I pretty much don't. I don't read them because it's all it's just all made up, you know, yeah, they're I can't all really get behind that. Lots and lots it's of all lies. lies for hundreds of pages of someone not telling the truth. 
Exactly. I'm a really big believer in sort of the platonic theory of art where people who paint and people who tell stories are just liars. And uh, that's my whole outlook on life. Uh, but I did pick up Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, big, chunky book, The Ministry of the Future. Um, okay. Let me tell you about this book. I think I've mentioned some things about it before in the podcast, but I'll tell you some more things right now. Mm -hmm. The book is like really broadly about the possible sort of optimistic outcomes to figuring climate change out as like a species. And it's optimistic in the end, uh, but at the beginning, it's like brutal. It's like the most horrible thing I can imagine. Uh, So the opening chapter is about a heat wave in India that more or less boils like an entire town alive, except one guy who escapes and it messes him up deeply. (laughs) But that's that's for the book that I don't want to give any spoilers away. Um, Reading through that opening chapter and the, you know, thinking about the danger of climate change or whatever, it kind of was really visceral for me. Like, you know, global warming as is for a lot of people, I think, um, is just sort of like a floating idea that's sort of abstract. But I think when I read that book, it kind of became real and apparent to me in a way that it wasn't before. So I guess uh, those made up words of of lying authors, um, they're not all bad. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, pretty scary if you really think about it. Um, but anyways, I think it's worth pointing out now that uh, it is getting a little too nonfiction for me because uh, India and Pakistan uh in, in real life, not in just a book, are in the throes of an extremely severe heat wave. And it's not even summer in those regions yet. So that's, you know, um, it could get worse, I guess. I don't really know. I'm not a meteorologist, but it seems like it probably could. Yeah, seems that way. <laughs> All let's say, I think it's uh, it's easy to let something like climate change just be like an abstract problem. But it is real, <laughs> as, I've, as I've been uh, led to believe. And uh, we're seeing the effects now in the world, Um, you know, a heat wave in India, massive forest fires, uh, awful storms and so on. Um, Man, uh, somebody in our discord chat, even this is an aside, but it does. uh, It it is related. Somebody in our discord chat did link this um, this real estate website that will tell you the um, the possible um, climate change uh dangers for the house that you are currently living in. And that Mm -hmm. was not great to look up. I don't like that. sort of projection into like 50 years or whatever. And it shows you that like, you know, the place that you live will be, I don't know, um, extremely hot or have awful storms or whatever. It all sucks. Uh, it's all sucks and it's bad. Um, but I am using all of the power in my being to not be like a doomer about it all. Um, because it is all really scary, but like, if you believe nothing can be done, then you're even worse off than having climate change be, you know, looming or something. Yeah. So one of our faves on this podcast is a, yeah, like a Brazilian, uh, like, and French sort of political theorist named Michael Lowy, um, who co-wrote a very short article in Monthly Review with some other folks who are like um, degrowth authors who I know about less. So I'm just going to kind of play up the Michael Lowy angle on this one. <laughs> yeah. um, and the article is really fascinating because in it, he recognizes what are like points of unity between people who advocate for degrowth and people who are socialists in ways that don't like, I guess, extinguish either movement, but kind of keep them both unique while uh, pointing out that, that these people need to work together. Um, yeah, it, it's helpful insofar as it lays out places where like activists can find common ground and strengthen their unity and, and kind of like plan of action, I guess, in the world. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to talk about some of the recent moments in climate change um, and how scary they are and how much they are extremely unsettling to me. 
And we'll also talk about those those like points of unity when it comes to practice and organizing and action around uh, degrowth and socialism. And uh, because this podcast is all about Christianity and the left, we'll also talk about the ways that Christians are like directly implicated in all of this uh, morally and I don't know, otherwise. Does that all sound okay, Dean? It sounds great to me. The way you're putting it now, I'd listen to this for another 45 minutes at least. <laughs> all right. Well, good. I'm glad that's the case. Um, <laughs> let me tell you, let's let's like, I don't know, uh, the, the thing, the sort of like confluence of like reading this like fiction book about India and then like the sort of um, the reality of it actually happening is kind of been like a lot for me to think about in the last week for whatever reason. Uh, and has made me, I don't know, in a bad mood, uh, upset, <laughs> annoyed, feeling all kinds of different weird frustrations um, because what can you do kind of in the face of global disaster? So a recent article in the Washington Post uh, talked about some of the specifics around uh, the Indian heat wave and how bad it is. And uh, I'll just read it to you here so you can kind of get a good handle on like what's happening in the world, I suppose. Uh, it starts like this. Temperatures in India remain high amid ongoing heat waves that have plagued the country with dry, sweltering uh, weather since the early spring. The India Meteorological Department, or the IMD, uh, which is a lot easier to say, stated that its March maximum temperatures were the highest in nearly a century and a quarter, which I think is like 120 years. So it's like a extreme, extreme high. And rainfall was only running about a quarter to a third of normal. So it's very hot, hotter than it's ever been in 120 years, and then also uh, not so much rain. On Monday, uh, several cities across the nation registered highs over 109 degrees and uh, even in some places 113 degrees, which is like extremely hot. Um, <laughs> I don't need to tell you. Uh, if you don't live in the United States, that's uh, 42 degrees Celsius and 45 degrees Celsius, so extremely bad. Um, temperatures are forecast to rise further, leaping 10 to 15 degrees um, or 5 to 8 degrees Celsius above average during the second half of this week, reigniting worry for those without any way to escape the heat. Portions of northern and western India, especially areas uh, near the borders with Pakistan and Nepal, may endure the most extreme heat where the highs may reach 110 to 115 degrees or 44 to 46 degrees Celsius. Uh, between Friday and Sunday, temperatures could climb as high as 120 degrees or 49 degrees Celsius, if the most yeah. extreme forecast models are correct. Okay. Wild. It is extremely wild. I think, like, okay, so it's hot, and that's bad. Um, and, like, you know, people don't have access to um, air conditioning all the time, or maybe you do, but, like, if everyone's running it, maybe, you know, whatever, the electricity could go out, it would be a brownout. I mean, it's such a scary thing because like 110 or 115 or God forbid 120 degrees Celsius is like it's so hot that like, I don't know, it's like what way past like wet bulb territory even. It's just like, you know, you could mm -hmm. your body would shut down in that kind of heat. There's no way you could like make it if you don't have access to a way to cool yourself down. Yeah, that is very bad and extremely scary. And it's also important too to recognize that. Um, it's not just India is not just a country in a hot part of the world, but is also a poor country on the whole. Uh, the people who will suffer will be the people who are the poorest in that country. And I think that's also a piece that often gets left out of climate change discourse that uh, as the way they put it in a lot of activist circles, uh, the people who contribute the least to climate change are the people who will experience the worst of its effects. Yeah, that's right. And it's important to keep emphasizing that, too, when we start talking about India or, you know, a number of other countries in the global south where um, whether it's uh, rising temperatures or, you know, extreme weather events or whatever, um, 
it's those regions that are going to end up getting the the brunt of it uh while people in the global north are maybe not totally insulated from it obviously you know we're it's all it's all happening all all the time everywhere but uh certainly have access to other resources and um other uh i don't know it's it's not as bad here as it is in other places yet you know uh, so far yeah <laughs> that that will change but so far well at least not in terms of just like sheer heat or something right like yeah forest yeah, fires or like a hurricane extreme, or whatever I'm yeah old. there's all kinds of different ways it happens here but it's, it's but it is notably different and i think importantly different yeah i think to me what's so frustrating is that this was just like a, a one-off story in the washington post and you know it was picked up a few other places and i think a few people were talking about it on twitter but it's like to me this seems like kind of unbelievably hot and um it seems also equally unbelievable that people like I guess aren't uh, as shook up by it as I am. I, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm like overly sensitive, or or maybe I misunderstand the threat or something. I don't think either of those things are true, but uh, <laughs> it seems like uh, this should be like a pretty bad thing <laughs> that people recognize as being bad. Mm-hmm. But you know, meanwhile in the United States, I don't know. We have politicians and all kinds of people who don't believe climate change is even real. Um, and uh, it's disconcerting and it sucks. I hate it. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just like yeah. it's the worst. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, Sonic wouldn't let this happen, <laughs> that's for sure. He'd spin around in a big circle until there was a cool tornado that cooled <laughs> That's how he would solve this one. All right. Well, uh, because Sonic doesn't exist, we do have to think through other things like strategies for degrowth and strategies for eco-socialism. If Sonic did exist, none of these things would be problems. But OK, anyways. <laughs> that's because Sonic would uh, lead us all to a socialist revolution. <laughs> Thank time. you. Comrade Sonic and Comrade Knuckles and Comrade <laughs> Tails, the three... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the three leaders of the movement. Okay, so let's talk, though, I, I guess, about um, these points of unity that Michael Lowy and these other authors bring up. And uh, I think they're good and maybe can help us think through a way to combat and like struggle against uh, the reality of climate change um, now that I feel at least extremely implicated in it just by my own existence on the planet. <laughs> um, so this is in... The Monthly Review, which is a magazine that we like to talk about a lot in this podcast, it's by a handful of authors, uh, and the article is called Points of Unity for an Eco-Socialist Degrowth. So it's a really short article. Um, We'll link it in the show notes. We'll put it on our Twitter page. You can read it in probably like, I don't know, five minutes. Um, So we'll just talk through some of these points of unity and say why they're important. So the the point here is that... um, you know, some people who are interested in ecology and activism, who are like, um, you know, interested in like the the theory of degrowth, uh, some people in that camp are not socialists, and some people are socialists but not interested in ecology. And the point of this article is to be like, well, you need you need both of these things. These both these things are really important. Um, so they they've written these like um, mutually agreed upon, um, and I think pretty unobjectionable. Um, points of unity to kind of like knit these two groups of people together to like, I guess, better understand the world, but also kind of figure out how to act in uh, a world where climate change is uh, devastatingly real. Before we, sorry, before we dive into the points of unity themselves, should we maybe say something really briefly just to set up the the conversation? Yeah, like, let's do it. Um, so there's socialists on the one side, right? There's degrowth folks on the other. And why, why even feel the need to bring them together, I guess, in an intentional way? Um, 
So the socialism piece is probably easier for folks to listen to this podcast, I would hope, <laughs> to kind of be more familiar with that tradition. You know, there, socialism has a long, complicated history with uh, environmentalism. On the one hand, there are some great strides in ecological thinking that socialists can be proud of. And on the other hand, uh, the biggest socialist countries that we know of, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, um, China, some other countries and so on, also have a history of um, building their economies in ways that are sometimes ecologically destructive, uh, more, you know, some worse than others. And there's all kinds of reasons, historical reasons for that and everything else. But it's also important not to just uh, let socialists off the hook, too, for destroying the environment <laughs> while building up uh, productive capacities, uh, even if we want to understand lots of nuances and, and so on. So the socialist tradition has always kind of struggled to find its um, ecological voice. But I think in the last, definitely the last 30 years, um, and maybe more, there has been a, a concerted effort in figuring out a more eco-socialist direction, including in uh, countries like Cuba or uh, even in, in China, but in a different kind of way, um, trying to think through what it would mean to invest in, you know, a green future for socialism. So all that to say, ongoing issue. On the degrowth side, degrowth is a really big, complicated conversation. There are voices in it that are better than others. Um, it's got a lot of misunderstandings and misnomers. Uh, we just had a long, wild conversation on our Discord about it until and go. <laughs> it's a big, challenging thing to sort out. But uh, I think the biggest thing that is maybe a common misunderstanding is that degrowth refers to like a kind of primitivism or like a shrinking of social life or, or productive uh capacities on every front and that is not the case uh degrowth refers to degrowth in terms of uh, assuming capital growth is the metric by which we should measure our social development or kind of social investments and also that capital's decision what's good for capital is good for everybody right so you don't do a planned economy you you kind of let the market figure it out so degrowth folks are trying to say uh we should intentionally degrow the kind of capital investment structures of our society. And when we think about a word like growth, we should think about what to invest in to grow. So it's not against growth as such. For instance, uh, most degrowth people will talk about the need to expand or grow our healthcare capacities, uh, you know, th those kinds of things. But um, it's degrowth in terms of degrowing a, an economy that depends on a totally abstract notion of, of infinite capital accumulation. So you would assume that all those people are automatically socialist, but surprise, <laughs> some of them want to just degrow capitalism, but not necessarily, you know, do away with it. And so anyway, that's the occasion for the dialogue here, helping socialists maybe think through the ecological side and then helping degrowth folks think through the uh, the political economy side of both of those um, sides of the equation. Yeah, I think that's good. That's helpful to lay it out there. Yeah, a lot of people uh, can sometimes be cranky about degrowth, but I think... I don't know. There's, there's not much to be really cranky about. I think that there's a lot of good ideas in there, but um, I wouldn't want degrowth without eco-socialism as well. Okay, let's talk about these points of unity then. Um, so the very first one is really simple and one that I think is, I don't know, pretty obvious, uh, especially people who listen to this podcast. But anyways, capitalism cannot exist without growth. It needs permanent expansion of production, consumption, and accumulation, and the maximization of profit. Yeah, maybe nothing too wild about that point, but it is worth uh, maybe expanding on a little bit further, too, because I think it's super key to the ecology side. That So capitalism can't exist without growth, uh, but the problem is its growth, because it's tied to capital accumulation, it has this means of, of growing. Yeah. 
fictionally forever. You know, uh, there's an infinite growth capacity to the economy as such, but there is not an infinite capacity of the planet, right? The planet is finite. There's only so much of it. It can't, it literally cannot keep up with the infinite growth of uh, capital. And if you ever want to like see this principle in action, you know, whatever, you can read a lot of Karl Marx and he'll tell you all kinds of things about how capitalists want to grow their capital and so on. But I always tell people just to look up, like, how much money did your favorite rich person have uh, 10 years ago and how much do they have right now, right? Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, whatever. Uh, There's more money now in the world than there ever has been in the history of the planet, and there will be even more of it in 10 years. And why? (laughs) For no reason other than the accumulation of capital and uh, the Earth is not going to be able to uh, keep up with that kind of growth. Sorry, this is, uh, we're going to talk about the, our Discord channel a lot in this one for whatever reason. I think we've been having a lot of interesting conversations lately. Uh, last <laughs> night, uh, a handful of folks from the Discord, we uh, we met and decided that we wanted to read Society of the Spectacle, which is a, a book by a French guy named Guy Debord. And the first two chapters are all about the sort of like senseless growth of capitalism. And it's a thing that we talked about quite a bit. Um, the, the thing that is really interesting about capitalist growth is that it is, I think, at its core, like nihilistic in a really dumb way. Um, not in like the cool, edgy sort of Nietzschean teen way, but like in the, uh, in the sense that like it's capitalist growth for really no reason. It's not like capitalism is like creating things that people really need. It's like creating more as seen on TV products or like, you know, like a bunch of like fast fashion that exploits, you know, people in the global South or whatever that, that growth is, um, not only is it like harmful ecologically speaking, but it's also just like nonsensical when it really comes down to it like it's not it's not there to meet anyone's needs it's there to just kind of like create new needs that people don't actually need um i don't know a good point i think yeah i think so too yeah the growth also uh again is just not tied to it's not that's right it's alienated from our actual life right whose purposes does it serve it serves the purpose of capitalists it doesn't serve yours or mine it uh tries to adjust your needs or uh or your purposes but it does it in a weird way all right Sorry, we'll stop talking about capitalist growth for a hot second and we'll come back to it, I'm sure. So <laughs> the second point of unity, I think, is is a good one. Um, any true alternative to this perverse and destructive dynamic needs to be radical. That is, it must deal with the roots of the problem, which are the capitalist system. It's exploitative and extractivist dynamic and it's blind and obsessive pursuit of growth. Eco-socialist degrowth is one such alternative. In direct confrontation with capitalism and growth, eco-socialist degrowth requires the social appropriation of the main means of uh, reproduction and production and a democratic participatory ecological planning. The main decisions on the priorities of production and consumption will be decided by the people themselves in order to satisfy real social needs while respecting the ecological limits of the planet. This means that people at various scales exercise direct power in democratically determining what is to be produced how and how much, how to remunerate different kinds of productive and reproductive activities that sustain us and the planet. Okay, so if capitalism is the problem, eco-socialist degrowth is part of that solution that we have to recognize because it's um, it's confronting the problem directly. It's um, saying that the c- capitalism is sort of the root of the environmental crisis because of its um, capacity or like fantasy of unlimited growth or infinite growth and eco-socialist degrowth recognizes that like that is not possible (laughs) i think at a very like real level and that there's a different way to um start organizing society not uh not just like a a, like a you know 
20th century socialism or whatever that uh, does, you know, overproduce as well or, or causes all kinds of other ecological problems. But one that is democratically designed uh, in a participatory way, which is a good vibe kind of coming off the Kerala conversation from last week. It's helpful, too, because when we think about capitalism uh, and the story that it tells about the world, one reason that we have a growth oriented economy is that, as I said a moment ago, uh, it serves the needs of capitalists, which is to accumulate capital, right? So again, you can read all kinds of political economy stories about why that is. But the idea is a capitalist, uh, for example, buys a bunch of labor, buys a lot of workers' uh, labor power in order to uh, hopefully expand their capital to make it bigger, to get it, you know, more, more and more of it uh, for whatever reason they might have. Uh, but that is not necessarily in the interest of the working people, right? They don't even necessarily see the, uh, the, the benefits of that growth. It doesn't come back to them in the form of wages and whatever. Um, it's, uh, ex it's expropriated. Uh, and the idea of an eco-socialist degrowth project, I think tying the planning and democratic side is so important because the assumption is, uh, working people should be able to decide what they want to invest the, the fruits of their labor in which is probably not going to be uh, schemes to make like a handful of CEOs richer and richer, right? Uh, if you had to choose what your labor should go to, that probably wouldn't be the choice that you make. And maybe you'd uh, start thinking a little bit more carefully about uh, the effects on the planet and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's, it's a risk. And maybe this applies too to the Kerala conversation we had a moment ago as well. But um, there's this uh, sort of bet on the democratic process that people do have their interests in mind. And I think that is also a, just a, a an important way of shifting our conversation around what what are economies for, what are what's labor for, what's capital even for, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm going to skip a few of these because I feel like we're touching on them in different ways, but I'm going to jump to one that is I think quite important and pretty interesting. This is the fifth one, and it says this: It's well known that the global north is historically responsible for most of the carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere. The rich countries must therefore take the larger part in the process of degrowth. At the same time, we do not believe that the global south should try to copy the productivist and destructive model of development of the north, but look instead for different approaches, emphasizing the real needs of populations in terms of food, housing, and basic services instead of extracting more and more raw materials and fossil fuels for the capitalist world market, or producing more and more cars for privileged minorities. Um, I think this is good because, uh, first of all, it does place the blame where it needs to be placed, uh, the global north. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, like I said at the top of the episode, uh, you know, um, people like politicians in the United States and and people who aren't politicians too, <laughs> other other regular people mm -hmm. who are just as bad, um, you know, they don't recognize climate change as a real problem. They don't want to change their lives at all. They don't want to, you know make any kind of concession to this whole idea. Meanwhile, people in the global South are actually suffering uh, because of a giant heat wave and like that, you know, you have to kind of like recognize that there is uh, a group of people in that equation that do have more of a responsibility than others. Um, and I think that is an important realization. Um, it's, it's tough for sure to convince people who are uh, trained in every single way possible <laughs> to, um, first of all, not care about other people, but also to think that like the, the exponential growth um, of capitalism is, you know, the only way to live your life, that they should stop doing that. I mean, it's hard, but it's, uh, you know, necessary. I think that's exactly where you have to place the blame. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point as well. We'll probably return to it in a minute because I want to talk about Laudato Si after this, because there's a lot of pieces of that people in Google that kind of tie in. 
but uh, the stuff about the global north and global south have having differentiated responsibilities, and also, uh, I guess maybe the, are are open to have different uh, futures as well is really important. Um, it's complicated because one big conversation in discourse around imperialism, especially in the latter part of the 20th century and even a little bit into the 21st century, uh, a lot of that discourse had to do with understanding the global economic system as a, a system, right? It's world systems theory, dependency theory, all these different ways of talking about uh, how the global economy is organized. And the sort of perspective of Global North countries and Global North financial institutions like the the IMF and the World Bank and so on was that they uh, Global South economies, if they want to develop, they should just follow the pattern of Global North countries. But the irony is, uh, even in recommending that and sometimes coercing that path, uh, they could never really the global south could never break out of also being uh, kind of like a like doomed to being a link in the chain of global north supply chains and, and value chains and things like that. So, uh, OK, all that that's like a lot of jargon. But <laughs> the point is, uh, global south economies are like integrated into the consumptive and productive habits of the global north in these really complicated ways. So like the way that we in Canada and the United States and Europe uh, primarily the way that people in those countries consume and also, uh, I don't know, live our lives is uh, contingent on not only devaluing the labor and resources of the global south, but kind of like locking them in place there, like not really allowing them to move in a different direction so that they have to reproduce an exploitative uh, economy to keep going. And the idea here is that the global South should find some alternative that basically delinks them from that kind of chain. Uh, and what that would mean is that we would in the global North have to change our own consumptive patterns. Uh, we wouldn't be able to have planned obsolescence or a new iPhone every two years or whatever it might be. Right. And like you're saying Matt, that's a hard thing to get for people to get used to, but it's kind of like, you know, should your, should the extremely weird benefits of like rich people or the comforts of rich people come at the cost of, you know, people in Brazil or something where Michael Lowy is thinking from. And I think that is like an important open question. It's also, it's not as simple as like individuals consuming stuff, right? It's, it, it's not reducible yeah. to that, but just to say uh, it's all, all linked together in this really complicated Yeah, totally. Way. Uh, planned obsolescence is a really good example though. I mean, you know, you need, uh, a huge supply of like lithium, which is, you know, not great to make all kinds of electronics that will break in a few years. And, you know, what if you didn't is a great question to maybe ask. Right. Um, okay. Right. Uh, skipping around a bit here again, because I'm trying to, you know, cut on time. But uh, number seven says eco-socialist degrowth can only win through a political confrontation with the fossil oligarchy and the ruling class who control political and economic power. Who is the subject of the struggle? We cannot overcome the system without the active participation of the urban and rural working class who make up the majority of the population and are already bearing the brunt of capitalism, social and ecological ills. But we also have to expand the definition of the working class to include those who undertake social and ecological reproduction. The forces who are now at the forefront of social ecological mobilizations, youth, women, indigenous people, and peasants. Uh, I like this point because, uh, again, people get really trapped, uh, especially people on the left sometimes, about, like, who counts as the working class or, like, who, you know, who who is the revolutionary subject as every 
uh, dumb French political theorist wants to ask. Um, and what Michael Lowy says is like, you know, the people who are are bearing the brunt of capitalism and uh, and ecological devastation, like those are the people who, you know, you need to organize with. And those are the people who need to kind of lead those conversations because they're the people who are most impacted. Um, but I like that. Um, I like the idea of expanding working to being, uh, I mean, there, there's a downfall to it too, I think. But um, I think there's something good about idea of including including um people in, uh, who are doing like social and ecological reproduction in, in the working class um it's a, a lot more holistic approach i think about thinking uh, about the people who are actually exploited yeah i agree i mean i also have maybe like a weird old-timey marxist reservation about mm -hmm. expanding that category mostly because it's like the question of a political category versus an analytical yeah. category so like analytically i want the working class to refer to the proletariat because they have like a unique role in a capitalist economy that is different from peasants and you know peasant labor factors into that economy differently and so on and so forth but like insofar as we're having the conversation about a revolutionary subject i think that is absolutely right right like we have to expand a view beyond the proletariat uh recognizing the analytical advantages that 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 those working people have um, but uh, not counting out the other advantages that other people have uh, by virtue of their own social relation, which is something that Marxism has always struggled to sort out. Um, we talk in this podcast a lot about liberation theology's use of the poor yeah. as a category, um, and I like that a lot. But uh, it's true, too, that maybe expanding the idea of the working class uh, kind of creates a more active um, or activated constituency, whereas the poor kind of struggles together out of those like passive connotations or something like yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Um, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, and, and, you know, it is, um, not without qualification, I guess. <laughs> and there's also a problem too with it. I think like, I don't want to say that uh, like every type of production is also like work because I think that's kind of a complicated idea too, especially when it comes to social reproduction mm -hmm. and, uh, ecological reproduction. But, uh, but still there's a, there's points made here and I like it generally, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. The thrust of it is very good. Right. Uh, but if I'm going to be a cranky philosophy person, I'm going to have some other things to say. But that's like for different podcasts. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Yeah. If it's for the book. <laughs> it's for the book that we'll never write and uh, will never come out. <laughs> but it's in, it's going to be in there. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> all right. The very last the very last point of unity here is uh, it's a good one. Eco-socialist degrowth forms part of the broader family of other radical anti-systemic ecological movements. Eco-feminism, social ecology, Sumac Causeway, the indigenous good life environmentalism of the poor, blockadia, Green New Deal, and its more critical versions. I'm not sure which ones those are, but I, <laughs> I hope that they're out there. Um, among many others, uh, though, we do not seek any primacy. We just think that eco-socialism and degrowth have a shared and potent diagnostic and prognostic frame to offer alongside these movements. Dialogue and common action are urgent tasks in the present dramatic conjuncture. Um, I like that approach, though, that, like, I don't know. These are two different ways uh, that activists have thought about uh, the problem of growth and ecological destruction um, and that, uh, you know, one doesn't have to be better than the other necessarily, but they both offer a pretty important and powerful diagnostic tool as well as a sort of what is to be done kind of moment, a prognostic tool, I suppose. Um, I think it's good. I think it's good to kind of have that approach to kind of think along, to, to think about uh, those two ways of uh, thinking about ecology alongside all these other sort of different um, iterations of not iterations, but like different traditions of thinking about ecology as well um, that rely on different frames of references and structures of knowledge. I think that's pretty powerful not to not to say everyone has to get on the degrowth bandwagon or the eco-socialist bandwagon, uh, you know, and, and recognize that um, 
you know, ecofeminism or like an indigenous view of ecology has something that's really important to say that maybe ecosocialism or, or degrowth couldn't say by itself. And I, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for sure. Um, I mean, you could even, they don't say, but you could add maybe even something like liberation theology into that mix, right? It's, uh, okay. it has some points of contact with all this stuff, but, uh, it's doing something different as well. Um, and, uh, important to let the dialogue be the dialogue. Um, well, I think they're great. These are great. They're all great points. Good job, team. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe to just kind of keep on thinking, though, about this, uh, there's a really fascinating old uh, older essay by Michael Lowy about La Data C that he wrote in 2015, so about when the encyclical came out. And I had a look at it just as we were thinking about doing this episode because I hadn't read it in a long time. And I was actually uh, surprised by some things that Lowy pulled out that I guess I never really, I don't know, when I've read La Data C a couple times, it just never stuck out to me. And I'm kind of surprised why. I guess because I hadn't really been reading degrowth literature in particular. Um, and uh, anyway, maybe Lowy wasn't either in 2015, but he had a he had some antennae out. So the essay is called La Data C, the Pope's Anti-Systemic Encyclical. It's also from the Monthly Review, or, or it's posted there anyway. Uh, and maybe I'll just start with uh, the general remark. So let see if you've never heard of it. It's an encyclical letter that Pope Francis wrote about the environment. And it was his first encyclical. It's a big deal. People love it. It's, uh, it's out there. People are organizing around it and so on. Um, we've talked about it on the show a bunch of times. Uh, what I like about the subtitle here, the Pope's anti-systemic encyclical, is it draws in kind of what I was just talking about in terms of world systems theory. So Lowy comes out of Brazil. Uh, Latin America has a long history of um, developing this this idea of world systems. There's lots of economists kind of in the mix, but some major ones came from Latin America. And uh, the idea is that capitalism is a global system in which it's not just like one country that's out there being capitalist, like the U.S. or a handful of them, like in Europe or something. But it really is a, an economic system that kind of draws everything into itself and then creates these these different relationships. So it, what you might see in miniature in a single country, for example, like if you think about the manufacturing base in the United States that used to exist and now has been kind of offshored to other countries, uh, you can kind of see those local things uh, scaling up, right? The manufacturing moves to another country. Why? Because the labor is cheaper in whatever, Indonesia or something, or Bangladesh, if you want to make textiles and clothes or something, as opposed to in the global north. So it's this recognition that the demands of capital are always trying to make the world smoother for capital flows, and that means... Uh, creating a system. So to say let out to see as an anti-systemic encyclical is already very interesting because it's trying to draw Pope Francis's vision into that discourse about systems. So, okay, let me read a big long quote and then we'll pause to talk <laughs> about it. So Michael Lowy says, for Pope Francis, ecological disasters and climate change, although they play a role, are not merely the results of individual behavior. Rather, they are the result of the current models of production and consumption. Bergoglio, who's uh, that was Pope Francis' name before he was the Pope, Bergoglio is not a Marxist, and the word capitalism does not appear at all in the encyclical, but it's very clear that for him, the dramatic ecological problems of our age are a result of the machinery of the current globalized economy, a machinery that constitutes a global system, a system of commercial relations and ownership which is structurally perverse. 
What are, for Francis, these structurally perverse characteristics? More than anything, they are those of a system where the limited interests of businesses and a questionable economic mindset take precedence. Um, he goes on to say quite a bit more, uh, but one thing that he does mention is the, the maximization of profits are a big issue. And lastly, Lowy says, uh, this ethical and social perversity is not unique to any one country, but is the product, in Pope Francis's words, of a global system where priority tends to be given to speculation and the pursuit of financial gain, which fail to take the context into account, let alone the effects on human dignity and the natural environment. And uh, what Lowy is really trying to play up here is that Francis sees the economic angle as totally constitutive of the ecological destruction of our planet. Um, and I am grateful for that because I spend a lot of time with people who talk about Laudato Si a lot, and uh, that doesn't always come through <laughs> the economic side, as you could guess. Um, but drawing it into that anti-systemic kind of discourse, I think, is actually a really helpful way to start thinking about eco-socialism, degrowth, and then bringing in a kind of eco-theological register or something. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's a pretty good observation from Lowy on, on Pope Francis. I can't get over that's what Pope Francis' real name is, um, Bergoglio. Bergoglio. <laughs> incredible. An incredible name for a great uh, <laughs> a great pope. Uh, I didn't know. <laughs> I guess I never even bothered to look. I just always thought it was just his name is Frank. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that is a good addition, though, a sort of eco-theological point. Um, I, I, I can't – I don't know. Just – I'm not an expert on literacy, and you, you are more so than I, for sure. But there's nothing really, I mean, despite the, like, uh, despite naming, you know, a handful of systems, there's not a whole lot that's really at odds between Lodato C and these, like, degrowth ideas. I think there's actually a lot of resonance between them. Um, you know, whatever. Pope Francis doesn't say capitalism. He doesn't say socialism. And, like, you know, fair enough. I guess he doesn't have to. Um, it's like, at least, like, recognizing the interconnected nature of the capitalist economy and how that does play into the... Um, ongoing and extremely pressing ecological crisis that we're seeing right now, I think is like the, the, the main sort of resonance between them. And I think it kind of works out. Yeah. I mean, so I mentioned, uh, Lowy had this way of seeing things that maybe I didn't see in 2015. And one of them is actually spying a degrowth kind of pulse in the encyclical itself. So later in the essay, Lowy says it's very significant that the encyclical recognizes the necessity in more developed societies of, and this is some quotes from Pope Francis, containing growth by setting some reasonable limits and even retracing our steps before it is too late. Or in other words, the time has come to accept decreased growth in some parts of the world in order to provide resources for other places to experience healthy growth. And uh, again, I mean, I don't know, I guess I just kind of blazed over that stuff when sure. you're reading along encyclical, but um, it is very interesting that already in 2015, Francis is kind of, you know, it would be putting it way too strongly to be like, Pope Francis is doing what <laughs> all these degrowth <laughs> totally, socialists yeah. want him to do. Um, but there's a, a recognition there that, you know, it's a paradigm of economic growth that is actually creating this dangerous, perverse system. And uh, we're going to have to talk about decreasing and slowing down that growth if we want to, you know, rebalance. Yeah, there's things. also, I think, some resonance, too, between um, like the Dado Sea and, um, well, maybe some other things that uh, Francis says and even Fratelli Tutti about um, democracy and... Um, you know, participation, I think there's, there's some of that going on there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's been Francis's big thing is how to build up a, a church that's based in popular movements, um, based in democratic experience. Uh, one other quote just from this, um, that I think is good. 
Uh, and kind of on these lines, too, Lowy goes on to say, confronted with the dramatic process of the destruction of the planet's ecological balance, uh, what do the governments or their international representatives like the IMF, World Bank, etc. propose? Their proposal is the ever-pretentious sustainable development, a concept that has become more and more lacking in meaning. Francis has no such illusions of the technocratic mystification. And then here's a quote from Laudato Si. Talk of sustainable growth usually becomes a way of distracting attention and offering excuses. It absorbs the language and values of ecology into the categories of finance and technocracy, and the social and environmental responsibility of businesses often gets reduced to a series of marketing and image-enhancing measures. Uh, also very important, right? Uh, the, the kind of attempt to save capitalism through a sustainable model of growth rather than challenging the concept of capital growth uh, for its own sake entirely, um, it becomes this way of uh, perpetuating all these these awful injustices. And again, just very cool that Pope Francis is like <laughs> suspicious of growth in an interesting way in Laudato Si. Yeah, uh, it reminds me just this past week, uh, Joe Biden was, I don't know, giving some kind of like press conference. And he said, uh, you know, um, we're going to make it so that all of the military vehicles are environmentally friendly. <laughs> OK, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> war being that famously extremely healthy yeah yeah, totally well um i guess something else i'm thinking about too is i mean within christianity there's an impulse um uh towards solidarity towards like loving your neighbor and all these kinds of things and uh i feel like that is a really important thing to map on to some of this too like degrowth and eco-socialism is very cool because it's talking about um you know the the root of the problem and the ways that like um, you know, ecological devastation and climate change or whatever are they're all linked to the global patterns of production consumption. Right. But there's also this like real, I think, important moral aspect that we can maybe speak to a little bit, too, um, that even I, I don't know. I mean, Francis touches on it, too, in, in a lot of different ways. But like, uh, I, I guess this is this is where I'm coming from, like. This this news comes out of India. There's like this awful um, heat wave. And like, to me, it seems like the most awful thing in the world. I can't imagine why people aren't talking about it more. And like, I even feel like maybe like I'm overreacting because of like uh, of how bad I think it is or whatever. But I think that Christianity does have an impulse within it that calls people to be like really empathetic towards other people, no matter where they are in the world. I mean, there's like, a, I don't know, people are bad at being empathetic in general, let alone empathetic towards people in a a different sort of like part of the globe. But I think that there is a sense in which uh, Christianity kind of should force people into thinking morally about their relationship to other people in the world and like practicing a type of empathy and uh, practicing a type of solidarity with those people that are actually, you know, they're actively suffering because of the, um, the productive and consumptive impulses that we all kind of find ourselves in. Um, So I don't know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to say about that, I suppose, but it would just be good, I think, <laughs> if uh, if Christians maybe, I don't know, uh, express that in some way or, or found ways to organize around that idea. Yeah, I mean, that's also maybe a great excuse to talk about how what that solidarity looks like in practice, um, you know, so being part of a Christian social movement. Um, I, it was really interesting to see a lot of the discourse around COP26 in the fall, which we talked about on this podcast, too, already, but uh, COP26 is when a bunch of UN people, world leaders, got together to discuss, I don't know, how they're not going to solve the <laughs> yeah. climate crisis, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, the big question for us and uh, for people in this kind of sector was like, well, how do we 
um, how do we express solidarity with the poorest in the world, with other people who are getting hit the hardest when world leaders are, are doing this? And there were all these actually very interesting efforts to amplify the voices of uh, vulnerable people, poor people. Um, there were, you know, all kinds of different ways of like doing, writing open letters. Uh, I don't know, like trying to create content, or translating content, just kind of creating like more avenues for the voices of people who would not be traveling to a UN conference to kind of have their voices heard. And I think that was all very good and very important. Um, but the thing that kind of stuck with me was like, this is great, but these people are just not going to listen, right, at, at COP26. And so how do we kind of build the material power by which we can make those voices that we're collecting, translating, amplifying, uh, make them have a, a material force in the countries where we can also sort of be an extension of of their their body as well, right? <laughs> to say, like, what does it mean in Toronto to know that there is a gigantic mining conference that happens here every summer? What does it mean to be like a Christian person who knows that mining is ecologically destructive and, you know, is responsible for uh, human rights violations? What does it mean to like be like, I live in that city. How am I going to oppose that in a, a meaningful, material way? And I think that's what it comes down to, like thinking about how to find, you know, ways to jam those efforts, ways to uh, slow them down, ways to create like ways to make it inconvenient and also ways to just actually stop <laughs> those things from happening. Uh, that's like a hard kind of nut to crack, but um, to think through how to translate that empathy for others into solidarity means, I guess, like strategy and organizing, as you're saying. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I wasn't initially going to say this, but now I'm going to talk about it, I guess, for a minute. Um, on April 9th, uh, it's, I guess, been a few weeks since that day. Um, but there was a really... I think interesting and good example of um, organizing around uh, ecological devastation and climate change um, in West Virginia, a group of people under the banner West Virginia rising, they all showed up at this place called the grant town power plant, if I recall correctly, um, which is a, um, a power plant in West Virginia. And, um, there's a family business that uh, Senator Joe Manchin's son owns, I believe, that sells like this like coal byproduct to this power plant. So like Joe Manchin has like sort of a vested interest in it. And he makes like, I don't know, like $500,000 a year from it or something, which is not like, you know, um, an outrageous amount, but it sucks. Like he's not, it's more than I am. Yeah, well, that's true. More than you do, more than I do. Uh, more than both of us do together. And um, <laughs> but it's also like it's also almost kind of sad that he's like um, destroying the planet for like less than a million dollars a year or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something kind of pathetic about that. <laughs> um, but anyways, a bunch of activists, they assembled at the gates of that uh, that power plant and they just like blockaded it for a day. And, um, you know, like a handful of people were arrested and uh, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a one day blockade. And I don't know. I mean, like they put their, they put themselves and their safety on the line because the police showed up. It's a whole thing. And they, um, they organized a lot of people to show up to it. And and now that, um, that, uh, you know, was kind of a catalyst for like another type of thing that's going to happen in a few weeks where they're sitting, they're having a sit in um, uh, against Joe Manchin and also Kristen Sinema to kind of like move them to act even like, meagerly towards uh towards uh sh like addressing climate change in the united states so it's like you know obviously not all of the answers obviously not like the the big revolutionary act that like is going to change the world but it is directly confronting people who are using fossil fuels to like you know continue destructing destroying the world 
And I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, it, but it's a way that, you know, that struggle, uh, the people of West Virginia, they're struggling politically and also kind of economically um, against the productive forces that are um, actively like cooking people alive across the globe. So it's something mm-hmm. to think about, I guess. Uh, it, it, you know, the points of unity are right. Like if you want to do something about climate change, you have to directly confront uh, uh, fossil fuels. And uh, that's that's it. That's how you have to do it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. like I said, not, not the whole answer, but I think a pretty important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I guess as we're saying, so there's points of unity between eco-socialists and, and degrowth, but also between this kind of Christian paradigm that we get from Pope Francis, but lots of other Christians too, and lots of other people of faith, right? That, uh, uh, there is this kind of moral call to recognize that, um, the way that our actions are tied into the suffering of other people on the other side of the world should be unacceptable, right? Like if you, in the Christian tradition, if you think Jesus was right about all kinds of stuff, that means that (laughs) once you find out that your life is making the lives of other people extremely bad, you should probably do something about that, right? (laughs) Like if there's anything good about conversion and maybe there's not, but (laughs) if there is, it's that kind of, uh, uh, desire to be more and more conformed to a pattern of life that is, you know, not creating more conditions for violence on the planet. And uh, I don't really know how you do that without <laughs> eco-socialism and, and degrowth at this stage of my life, uh, trying to kind of put those things in dialogue with, with many other movements too. But, um, you know, we don't need a world where capital is constantly building itself more and more. And we also don't need a world where capitalists get to decide what happens with all the value that's produced by actual working people. Yeah, for sure. You can't trust them. What do they want to do with it? Build more dumb stuff <laughs> that you don't need. It sucks. It sucks. It's bad. Like, wh- uh, why would you let <laughs> capitalists do that when, like, you and your community could do it? Like, the mechanisms exist. You could just, you know a different sort of system <laughs> i don't know um yeah. I, i'm too uh, i'm too careless pilled at this point to uh to see any other option <laughs> it's just like why would you let a bunch of dumb idiots like um decide that they want to destroy the world more than they want you to like live a good life uh when you could actually mm-hmm. just do it yourself and it would be fine yeah well i mean and carol is such a good example right the one of the big takeaways from that book we just read is uh uh, yeah. Do you want to grow the economy in some intentional ways? Of course you do. You got to do that. But like Kerala has managed to not actually have a lot of economic growth and still create a better life for people with basically, you know, with with extremely meager resources and with no political hegemony. And like that is impressive and should be an instructive lesson for us too. like, I don't know, the, the US and Canada have probably like grown enough (laughs) there's enough there's enough money floating around in these countries uh but it's not floating around in the right way right it's sending jeffies to space it's uh uh, getting elon musk to buy twitter like all these kind of dumb vanity projects and it's like i don't know maybe we just shouldn't do that (laughs) maybe they shouldn't get more and more money uh that seems like a pretty uncontroversial idea but nevertheless here we are (laughs) Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can, um, if you do uh, support us, you can get into this great uh, Discord channel that we keep talking about. <laughs> and uh, we're reading books. We're talking. We're posting pictures of pets. We're giving each other recipes. It's great uh, and a fun community to be a part of. So you should do that, I guess. Uh, or don't. I don't know, man. But you probably could. and be fine. <laughs> Um, okay, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong, our outro music is by The Logical Spoon, and we'll see you next time. I don't want to 
get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have. 